this evening, I thought to tell a story from the time of the Buddha. And it's a story that I think really speaks to just how the confusion of our minds can affect not only ourselves but others, kind of the ripple effects. And yet the possibility of a transformation even right in the midst of deep confusion. It feels to me in reflecting on this story that there are many parallels between things that happen in this story and things that happen today in the world. And so kind of a reflection that the human mind The greed, the aversion, the delusion that the Buddha spoke about, creating so much stress and suffering, both internally and externally, that part of our minds hasn't changed much in the last 2,600 years. And so the teachings of the Buddha, as we all have found, I think the, the... the real kind of appreciation for the value of these teachings, the value of the tra- and the transformative power of these teachings to help turn the mind away from greed, aversion, and delusion towards wholesomeness, towards wisdom, towards compassion, towards equanimity, The story is the story of Angulimala. Many of you, or at least some of you, I'm sure, have heard of this story. Angulimala was a mass murderer at the time of the Buddha. And there's certain parts of this story that are pretty familiar to at least some of us who have studied the suttas. There's a kind of a, the story in the suttas, there's a whole sutta in the middle-length discourses in the Majjhima Nikaya titled the Angulimala Sutta that tells his story of the time he met the Buddha and the transformation that happened for him. And there's a whole backstory that the commentaries also provide of how Angulimala became a mass murderer. And so that's the piece I really want to kind of fill in because it, to me, has so much richness of teaching. This exploration of how somebody actually, what, what the conditioning was that led them in that direction. So it's a story of conditioning, very much a story of conditioning. So some aspects of this story are kind of 
magical or mythological. And I don't know, you know, how much of it has been shaped and sculpted over the years, how much of it is actual fact of what happened. And yet it, there does seem to be, probably, probably there was a person who was a criminal. The, uh, the Vinaya, the Buddha's teachings on the monastic rules does speak about Angulimala and some rules that came out of the whole exploration or situation with him. And so there's the likelihood that, that he was an actual person at the time of the Buddha. So I'm going to tell some of this story by reading from um, a compilation. Somebody, uh, Helmuth Hecker, wrote, created this story based on the combination of the backstory from the commentaries and the sutta. So I'll read some of it from, from Helmuth Hecker's version of this story, and some of it I'll just um, kind of tell myself. But I'll start with Helmuth Hecker's version. At the time of the Buddha, at the court of King Pasanadi of Kosala, there was a learned Brahmin called Bhagavad Gaga who held the office of royal chaplain and was thus one of the kingdom's highest dignitaries. One night his wife, Mantani, gave birth to a son. Soon afterwards, the father cast the boy's horoscope and to his consternation found that his son was born under the robber constellation of the planets. This indicated that the boy would have within him a tendency to commit robbery. On the day of the child's birth, there was another disquieting event. All the weapons and armory in the city of Savati had suddenly begun to sparkle. In the morning, the Brahmin went to the palace as usual and asked the king how he had slept. How could I have slept well, replied the king. I woke up in the night and saw that my auspicious weapons lying at the end of my bed were in a bright sparkle, so I was afraid and perturbed. Should this mean danger to the kingdom or to my life? The Brahmin said, Do not have any fear, O king. The same strange thing happened in the entire city, and it does not concern you. Last night my wife bore me a son, and unfortunately his horoscope had the robber constellation. This must have been the cause for the weapon sparkling. The king asked, will he be a lone robber or the chief of a gang? He will do it alone, your majesty. And the, 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 um, the, the, the man whose son was just born then says to the king, what if we were to kill him now to prevent any future misdeeds. He was willing to sacrifice his own son out of concern for the kingdom. But the king says, as he would be a loner, let him be raised and properly educated. Then perhaps he may lose these tendencies. So the uh, 
the Brahmin and his wife named their son Ahimsaka, which in the Pali means non-harming. So they gave him a name that would even support his movement away from harm. And they raised him to be intelligent, studious, and he he grew up to be well-behaved, studious, intelligent, and very strong. He also was very strong in his body. But the parents had good reason to feel that his tendencies, they didn't see any tendencies as a child in, in him kind of to become a bad person. And then his father, as he became a a teenager and grew to the age to go to school, his father sent him to study in Taxila, an ancient place of learning in India. And he was accepted as a student by the main teacher of that institution. And he was very studious. He was quite um, engaged with the teacher They had a very good relationship. He surpassed all of his fellow students. He became the teacher's favorite. And the other students got jealous. Since that young Ahimsaka came, we are almost forgotten. We must put a stop to it and cause a break between him and the teacher. So they began trying just slandering Angulimala, slandering Ahimsaka, slandering him. But that didn't have much traction because his behavior was so impeccable. So these students, still jealous, decided another route. They decided to plant seeds of doubt in the teacher's mind about Ahimsaka. So in three separate groups, seemingly unrelated, one group went to the teacher and said, we have the sense, we believe there's some talk being heard, and we think that Ahimsaka is plotting against you. And the teacher doesn't believe it. He says, don't tell me this nonsense. A second group, seemingly unrelated, comes to him and says, we've heard this, we think, we think Ahimsaka is plotting against you. And the second time the teacher says, you know, just, this is ridiculous. He's like my son. I know him so well. And a third group came saying the same thing. And they added the statement to him, to the teacher. They said, well, if our teacher does not trust us, then examine it for yourself. See for yourself. Find out for yourself if Ahimsaka is plotting against you. So from this, the teacher, the, 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 the sentence in the, in the story says, Once suspicion is roused, it says, finally the poisonous seed of suspicion took root in the teacher's heart and came to believe that possibility that Ahimsaka wanted to push him out. 
Once suspicion is roused, one can always find something that seems to confirm it. So the teacher's suspicion grew into conviction. I must kill him or get him killed, he thought. But then he continued, it will not be easy to kill such a strong man. Besides, if he's slain while living here as my pupil, it will harm my reputation. And my students may no longer come to me. I must think of some other device to get rid of him, as well as to punish him. So I'm going to stop here and reflect a little bit on what has just transpired in this story. We have the jealousy of students. Ahimsaka, just being who he is, is a delight to be around. The teacher really loves him. He's, he's not doing anything wrong. And I want to emphasize that the, the story makes it clear that the seeds of doubt that the students are planting are complete falsehoods. They are fake news. <laughs> Jealousy, probably kind of an equal mixture of greed, aversion, and delusion the greed of wanting something that somebody else has, the close relationship with the teacher, the aversion that I don't have it, the aversion to the person who feels like they're supplanting you, and the delusion that all of this is That, that acting on these would be a way to actually have happiness. That getting rid of Ahimsaka in some fashion, creating a split between the teacher and Ahimsaka would create happiness for them. A deluded perspective that that kind of happiness that's created is a lasting kind of happiness. So the jealousy, the, the uh, unskillful Um, motivation of the students prompted them to lie, prompted them to act in an unskillful way, prompted them to be unethical, to lie to the teacher, to create, to get what they wanted. And so we have the condition of unwholesome mind states creating unskillful, unethical behavior. And then we have you know, this propaganda thing going in this story. Repeated hearing of something. Repeatedly hearing something. And over time, beginning to kind of take it in as truth. We become more likely to believe something that we've heard repeatedly. And then we might see the world, tend to see the world from that perspective, or if we're looking from that perspective to say, well, let's see if this is true. We might be looking for evidence that supports it, but not evidence that disconfirms it. This well-known tendency of confirmation bias that we talked about a week or two ago. This is a teaching about how our minds work this sentence of once 
Once suspicion is roused, one can always find something that seems to confirm it. This is such a tendency of our minds. It's a frightening aspect of our minds in some ways. We've talked about this the other, the other day, of how our minds will tend to not see something when we have a particular perspective. Actually not see it. And yet, recognizing that this is how our minds work, knowing this information is so useful, because it does begin to help us to potentially question what we, what we take as our views, what we take of as true, as what we take of as what, what we believe. There's been some studies done on how quickly views form. There's a, an article called Why Facts Don't Change Our Minds. <laughs> and in this it talks about a, a study that was done about how quickly a view was formed. So in this study... Students were handed packets of information about a pair of firefighters, Frank K. and George H. Frank's bio noted that, among other things, he had a baby daughter and liked to scuba dive. George had a small son and played golf. The packets also included the men's responses on what the researchers had called the risky conservative choice test. According to one version of the packet, Frank was a successful firefighter who on the test almost always went with the safest option. In the other version, Frank also chose the safest option, but he was a lousy firefighter who'd been put on report by his supervisors several times. Midway through the study, the students were informed that they'd been misled and that the information they'd received was entirely fictitious. The students were then asked to describe their own beliefs. What sort of attitude towards risk did they think a successful firefighter would have? The students who'd received the first packet said they thought he would avoid it. The students in the second group thought he'd embrace it. The researchers made a note Even after the evidence for their beliefs has been totally refuted, people fail to make appropriate revisions in their beliefs. The researchers noted, in this case, the failure was particularly impressive since two data points, Frank and George, would never have been enough information to generalize from. So one exposure to information told almost immediately it was fake news, and still that first impression shaped their views. The researchers noted, once formed, impressions are remarkably perseverant. This is humbling to see this, 
to recognize just how quickly views can form. And often we don't even know their views. And so knowing something about this can help us. There's other places in this, um, in this article that talks about ways that we can begin to, you know, um, I don't know what the right word is, combat or, or correct for, maybe is the best word, correct for this confirmation bias. There's, there was a study they did where they um, asked people their views and then they asked them to explain what they thought, uh, they asked them uh, what their views were about particular political policies. And, you know, people had very strong views about their political policies, but when asked to describe in detail how those policies would work, they realized that they didn't really know how they would work, and they backed off a little bit on their uh, intensity of their beliefs. So this is a little bit of a clue. You know, can we reflect a little more carefully on the, uh, the, the, the ramifications of what we think. So the story continues. The teacher has decided, based on fake news, based on information that was not true, he did not know that he was being lied to. So he didn't get that, he didn't get that extra bit of information. You know, by the way, this was false. Still might have, still might have, you know, gotten in there because, you know, just as this, this story, this uh, example shows how quickly, how quickly views can form. But the teacher had been told things that weren't true, but he believes they were true. And in his own, um, exploration, he confirmed they were true. So the teacher is acting out of what he thinks of as true. So here's where I feel like there's a kind of a thread of how sila, ethical conduct, really plays out in our lives, in the world. So the teacher, the students, out of jealousy, told lies. And just, just just think about the ripple effects here that are happening based on these actions and how potent our actions can be, especially when they're rooted in unethical conduct. I mean, this is a, a piece of this, of this story, is how potent unethical conduct is. So the students told these lies. Out of jealousy, they told these lies. The teacher believing them. So the teacher is taking what he's acting out of now, the, 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 his, his um, response, I need to have him killed or um, you know, somehow get rid of him. I need to get rid of him or have him killed. That's coming out of what he thinks of as true. And yet again, the action that he is point that the action that his mind is pointing him out, out of anger, out of fear, out of aversion, 
out of fear that he's going to somehow be supplanted, he's contemplating taking life. So again, the, uh, the movement towards unethical conduct in this story. I think another piece of this that's useful reflecting on is the teacher taking the action, believing what is, believing that the beliefs he's basing his actions on are true. It's delusional. It's not true. And yet, the power of belief to shape action, especially someone who holds power. In this case, the teacher holds some power, and that'll come out in just a moment in terms of what unfolds between the teacher and Angulimala to come. So the story continues. It happened that soon afterwards, Ahimsaka's course of studies had come to an end and he was preparing to go home. The teacher called him and said, My dear Ahimsaka, for one who has completed his studies, it is a duty to give a gift of honor to his teacher. So give it to me. Ahinsaka replies, certainly, Master, what shall I give? The teacher replies, you must bring me a thousand human little fingers of the right hand. This will be your concluding ceremonial homage to the science you have learned. Ahimsaka's immediate response is, I can't do that. How can I do that? My family has never engaged in violence. They're harmless people. The teacher says, well, if the science does not receive its due ceremonial homage, it will yield no fruit for you. Then Ahimsaka consented, and after worshiping his teacher, he left. So the commentaries kind of question, there's, there's, there's kind of a wondering why Ahimsaka went ahead with this. Um, they they speculate, the commentary speculates, some of it might have to do with the kind of predisposition that it, it was foretold in his um, horoscope when he was born, that he was born with these propensities for violence. But the other piece that is, that is considered is the unquestioning devotion to a teacher, in this case. This the teacher seemed to understand. He understood that Ahimsaka being a dutiful student, even the language here is like, well, if the science does not receive its due ceremonial homage, it will yield no fruit for you. And so the kind of the, the devotional kind of movement there to do what the teacher asks. So this is a, this is a power differential here. The, and Ahimsaka trusted the teacher 
and took up his suggestion. So again, there's some studies that point to, you know, this is, this is not just a dynamic that played out in ancient India in this story. The dynamic around power and people who will do things that they know are unethical when asked to do it by someone in power and control. This has played out over history. After World War II, there was a lot of question. Researchers took up the question of how could this have happened that ordinary human beings would do this kind of thing to the Jewish community. And so there were, there were some kind of studies about was this a power thing? One of the researchers at Stanford, some of you may have heard about the Milgram studies. At Stanford, Milgram speculated that power was a big piece of this. Someone in authority telling you to do something. How willing, he wondered, how willing would people be to go against what they know is ethically wrong given someone in authority telling them they should do it. So he created a study where, many of you may have heard this, heard of this study, where uh, there were two people who came. One of them was a ringer. One of them was a kind of participant in the uh, whole experiment. The other was the person who was being experimented on, basically. And so these two people arrived at the lab, and one was told, they, they, were, they were both told, this is an le- experiment about learning. We're looking at um, how much negative reinforcement will support or diminish learning. And so one person drew a straw saying they would be the learner, the other person, the person who administered the punishment because it was going to be negative reinforcement. And so this was set up. The person, uh, the person who was unknowing about this, this experiment was always the one who was going to be delivering the punishment. And so the, the setting was that somebody's in a room and they're hooked up to this machine that's going to deliver shocks. There's questions that are being asked. If they get them wrong, they're, deli- they're given shocks. And the person who, um, the, the student who came in as the one who didn't know about the experiment is the one giving the shocks. So this machine has a dial on it, goes from 15 volts to 450 volts. 15 volts, it says, mild shock. 450 volts, it says, danger. As they go, the person um, is answering a lot of questions wrong, and so the, uh, the experimenter tells the person, okay, you need to turn up the dial, make the shock more painful. It gets up pretty high, and the person starts screaming. They're not actually being shocked. They're acting, being shocked. But the person starts screaming, and the, uh, the, the person who's giving the shocks looks at the experimenter. Often there's the kind of the sense of, should we keep going with this? And, 
And the experimenter would say things like, the experiment requires that you continue. Please continue. Keep going. Uh, in kind of this neutral way, but just, you know, that, that prompting. The experiment requires that you continue. Two-thirds of the participants, two-thirds, delivered the highest level of shock, which would have been very dangerous. I don't know, it could have even caused death. Two-thirds of the people. And everyone in the, in the study went to a significant level. Everyone went to a very significant level of delivering shocks. Milgram wrote, I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because he was ordered to do so by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the participants' strongest moral imperatives against hurting others. And with the participants' ears ringing with the screams of the victims, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact that most urgently demands explanation. There were some additional um, studies that they did to kind of moderate or, or check like what was the what was the aspect what what might change when whether somebody would be willing to do this something as simple as taking the lab coat off the uh, scientist reduced participation the thing that almost completely eliminated it was when the um, the people were reminded that they carry the responsibility for their actions in the experiment. If they were reminded that if harm comes to that person, it's your responsibility, no one. Almost none were prepared to obey in that case. So this is really the teaching on karma. The Buddha says, we talked about this in the equanimity phrases, you are the owner of your actions. The responsibility for your actions lies with you. So again, this is pointing to a teaching on ethics that we are the owner of our actions that whether we act ethically, unethically has an effect not only on others but on us. And I think the, the, the humbleness of seeing how little power it takes for people to forego their own sense of ethics when they're not reminded of it. Maybe we should remind ourselves daily of this. The Buddha encouraged us to remind ourselves daily. I am the owner of my karma, the owner of my actions. My happiness and unhappiness depend upon those actions. So, Ethics supports us. Ethics can help us to counter, commitment to ethics can help us to counter some of the powerful forces of ignorance and craving in our minds. 
if the students had thought about not lying because that action, that breach of sila, that breach of ethics, they might have looked at their minds and saw the aversion and the greed in there and chosen not to act on it. Sometimes just the, the not acting, the, the, the ethics can be a kind of a, a warning bell for us. Is, are we getting ready to act unethically? There's some ignorance and delusion there. So really a useful guideline for us. So Ahimsaka goes off to get the thousand fingers and he chooses to do so not by going to a charnel ground and chopping off fingers of corpses but by killing victims and cutting off their fingers. So he basically terrorized the neighborhood. People in that area went to the king and said, you got to do something. You know, this guy is killing everybody. We, this is a problem. <laughs> and at this point, the Buddha enters the story. So um, at this point in the story... Ahimsaka has killed 999 people. So he has one more, one more person to kill to fulfill his obligation to the teacher. At that point in um, the news getting out where, you know, the whole neighborhood is talking to the king and the um, Angulimala's mother, oh, and oh, I forgot to tell you how he got the name Angulimala. The name Angulimala literally means garland of fingers. Mala of fingers. Angulimala. And that's how he got the name because he was wearing, he strung the fingers that he cut off into a garland and wore them around his neck. So, um, his mother was in the neighborhood and she had the intuition. Nobody knew who, who Angulimala was, but his mother had the intuition that it was Angulimala because he'd never come home from school. And um, she just had that intuition that it might be him. And so she decides to go find out if it's him, put herself in the way of this person who's killing all these people. And at the same time, the Buddha kind of, with his kind of magical power, surveys the world and um, understands that Angulimala is getting ready to kill his mother. And there's a connection in the, in the suttas. There's, it's discussed that there's a kind of a connection, a deep connection between Angulimala over many lifetimes, Angulimala and the Buddha. And so there was a connection there. And the Buddha saw that Angulimala getting ready to kill his mother in the kind of the Buddhist cosmology, the Buddhist um, understanding, in killing your mother, you are taking an action that would prevent you from being awakened in this lifetime. 
that the Buddha saw that Angulimala had actually developed so much uh, wholesome qualities in this lifetime that he had the capacity to become fully awakened in this lifetime. But if he killed his mother, that would nullify that possibility. And so the Buddha decides to put himself in the way of Angulimala, to go search out Angulimala. So this, at this point, the story is kind of a little bit mystical because the, the Buddha finds Angulimala and um, Angulimala kind of sees both his mother coming and the Buddha coming at the same time. And he sees his mother, he recognizes his mother and thinks, you know, well, you know, it's my mother, but, you know, I need this thousand finger. And it's not even like the compassion in his heart is so dead at that moment that he is even contemplating killing his mother. And so the Buddha kind of comes into the picture and then he sees the Buddha. He doesn't know he's the Buddha. He thinks he's just some random uh, ascetic wandering through the forest. And so he says, well, I'll kill him instead because, you know, why kill my mother? He, he, uh, he didn't understand that the consequences would be equally severe for killing a Buddha. <laughs> so Angulimala sees the Buddha and starts to chase, to follow the Buddha. And the Buddha used some of his supernormal powers to make it impossible for Angulimala to catch him. And the Buddha was walking at a normal kind of walking meditation pace, and Angulimala was running as fast as he could, and he couldn't catch up with the Buddha. Angulimala thought, it's amazing, formerly I caught up even with a galloping elephant and seized it. And I can't catch up with this monk who's walking at his normal pace. What's going on? And he stopped running and he yelled out to the Buddha, Stop! Stop, monk! Stop! And the Buddha kept walking and said, I have stopped, Angulimala. It's time for you to stop. And that kind of jarred his mind because in that moment, Angulimala was standing still and the Buddha was walking. And, and the, uh, Angulimala said, these monks tell the truth, but here I am standing still and this, this monk is walking and yet he tells me he stopped and I haven't. What does he mean? And so it kind of, the Buddha kind of knew it would kind of jar his, his mind a little bit. And, and so the Angulimala asked him, what do you mean? You tell me, while you're walking, you tell me you've stopped. But now when I've stopped, you say I've not stopped. What is the meaning of this? And the Buddha replies, Angulimala, I've stopped forever for swearing violence to every living being. But you have no restraint towards things that breathe. That is why I have stopped and you have not. So again, he's pointing to ethics here. He's pointing to stopping the violence, and that the Buddha has forsworn violence. 
And yet I think there's also, um, you know, a pointing in a way to, because the, the freedom of the Buddha, the, the mind of the Buddha, the freedom the Buddha points to is the stopping of greed, aversion, and delusion, the stopping of ignorance. That's another way the Buddha has stopped. Ignorance, greed, aversion, delusion, no longer arising, no longer functioning in the mind. And this, when ignorance arises in the mind, when delusion arises in the mind, this is where unethical behavior springs from. And so I think this is another pointing. Not only is it the ethical teaching, but it's a pointing to the deep stopping that's possible Although perhaps the Buddha knew in that moment Angulimala wasn't quite ready for that part of the teaching. But maybe he was ready for the teaching on ethics. So Angulimala had a very radical change of heart in that moment. Really strong uh, sense of, I met a teacher who can help me. And so he asked the Buddha for ordination, and the Buddha ordained him. So meantime, meanwhile, the king is still looking for Angulimala. The villagers do not know of this transformation, and um, the king's out looking for Angulimala to kill him. And on his way, you know, he's in the neighborhood of where the Buddha resides. And so the the king, kind of going by, stops where the Buddha is and pays respects to the Buddha. And the Buddha sees the king with his army and says, where are you going with this army? And he says, oh, he says, is there a war? And he says, no, there's not a war, but there is this single man, Angulimala. We need to put him down. But I don't have much hope in that. And the Buddha says, with Angulimala sitting next to him, now with his shaved head and in robes, so unrecognizable to the king. The Buddha says, but great king, if you were to see Angulimala with shaven head and beard, clad in the yellow robe, gone forth from the home life into homelessness, and that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking that which was not given, and from false speech and eating only at one time a day, and was living the life of purity and virtue and noble conduct. If you saw him thus, how would you treat him? Venerable sir, we would pay homage to him, invite him to accept the four requisites of a monk, and should arrange for his protection. But how could such an unvirtuous person of evil character have such virtue and restraint? Then the Buddha gestured, This great king is Angulimala. It says, the king's hair stood on end. (laughs) He lost his composure. (laughs) But the Buddha said, do not fear. There's nothing to fear. Now, this is interesting to me because it's like in this point in the story, the Buddha is telling the king not to fear. He's telling, saying, trust me, essentially. And the, the king does trust him. With that phrase from the Buddha, the king kind of relaxes and offers the requisites to Angulimala, offers him protection. 
was kind of a counterpoint in the story to the teacher telling Angulimala, trust me, you have to do this thing. And in this case, the Buddha saying, trust me, there's nothing to fear. So what's the difference here? And again, I think it comes to ethics. Because what the um, teacher was asking Angulimala to do was something unethical. He was asking him to kill beings. He was asking him to, to take life. And so that perhaps should be something, even in this position of power, to, to look at somebody asking you to do something unethical. There's a pause there. In the case of the Buddha, the Buddha is, is pointing to the ethical action. He's pointing to not harming, not killing Angulimala. So the, the ethics may be a support for us in terms of deciding how to act. Maybe something about who to trust. So at this point, Angulimala as a monk, we've been talking a lot about the external dimension of the story, the kind of interactions between people and how ethics plays out. And then the story turns more to the inward dimension of Angulimala as a monk, practicing, trying to meditate. Can you imagine trying to meditate after killing 999 people, what would be coming up in your mind? The story gives us a little hint. Angulimala had not been able to focus his mind on the basic meditation subject which he'd received, though he'd tried day and night. Before his mind's eye had appeared the place in the jungle where he had slain so many people, He heard their plaintive voices imploring him, Let me live, my lord. I'm a poor man and have many children. He saw the frantic movements of their arms and legs when in fear of death. When faced with such memories, deep remorse gripped him and made him get up from his seat and leave. This is what happens. This is how... So this is the inner consequences of unethical conduct. And... Likely, you know, he hadn't really felt the impact of it until he really sat down and looked at his mind. So he struggled. He struggled meditating, but he stayed. He, he committed to staying in the community. He didn't get a lot of support in the community. The community knew who he was at this point. They didn't give him much in the way of alms. In fact, they'd throw things at him. But he kept going. He kept going, committed to the sila, really committed to the sila at that point. At one point on one of his alms rounds, he heard the wails of a woman having difficulty giving birth, and his heart broke open in compassion for her. And to me, this is another beautiful piece of the story because kind of contrasted with the lack of compassion for Um, people that he was killing. 
his compassion breaking, his heart breaking open in compassion for someone giving birth. His heart broke with that, the suffering of that. And he went and talked to the Buddha about it. And the Buddha suggested that Angulimala go and say to that woman, Since I was born, I have never purposely deprived a living being of life. By that truth, may you and the infant be safe. And Angulimala says, I can't say that. I, I wonder about this one. You know, why did the Buddha do that? Why did the Buddha say him to do that? I'll tell you the next thing he told. He said, he said, then Angulimala say to that woman, sister, since I was born with the noble birth, I have never purposely deprived a being of life. By this truth, may you and the infant be safe. That Angulimala said. That I can say, since I became a monk, I have never purposely deprived another being of life. The kind of magical piece here is that that truth statement apparently created an easeful birth for the woman and and actually then Angulimala kind of has become a kind of patron saint for women in childbirth by that kind of statement, that kind of acknowledgement of since I became a monk, since I was born with the noble birth, I've never purposely derived a living being of life. So I've thought about this a little bit. You know, there's not a lot of explanation for why the Buddha told him to do this. I mean, it seems uncharacteristic of the Buddha to ask somebody to say something that's not true. And I wonder a little bit if it's, if it's a little bit of a test for Angulimala. You know, that, again, the Buddhist saying, you know, go to this woman and say, I've never purposely deprived a life since I was born. Deprived a being of life. It's, he's asking him to say something that's not true. Again, the power dynamic, a teacher asking him to say something that's unethical, that's not true. Is he willing to do it just because of that power dynamic? And he wasn't. He wasn't willing to do that. The other piece of this that the the commentaries point to is that it's it was really um, encouraging Angulimala to reflect on his sila since he became a monk that he had had a kind of a rebirth there into a life of non-harming, that he had kind of fulfilled his name, Ahimsaka. It is said that this shift, that when he, you know, he went to the the woman and said this statement that this this was true statement since I became a monk I've never killed another being I've never purposefully deprived another being of life after that point it said that his mind could settle in meditation and the story ends as 
the happy ending Buddhist stories do. (laughs) That Angulimala became fully awakened. The transformative power of the practice. And it didn't stop people from throwing things at him when he went on alms round. (laughs) And yet his mind could be at ease with that. So for myself, this story really points a lot to how sila supports us. And, you know, for ourselves too, this kind of way that reflecting on our sila. So I think several of of us have mentioned this, that we can reflect on our ethical conduct as a support to help settle the mind our lives here on retreat. We are living the Eightfold Path. Anushka spoke about last night. We're living the Eightfold Path. Bhante pointing to this in his own story. Yep, following the Eightfold Path. Not, not right, right action, yes, I'm doing that here and now. Right speech, yes, doing that. Taking some kind of support from that. And also, for myself, I have this feeling, you know, kind of an inspiration for myself in the depths of some of my retreats when I was really struggling, having such a hard time. Sometimes I would remember this story and think, if Angulimala could do it, Maybe I can too. So let's just sit for a moment. a verse from Angulimala's Enlightenment poem. Non-harmer is the name I bear, who was a harmer in the past. The name I bear is true today. I hurt not anyone at all. I stayed in forests, at the roots of a tree, in mountain caves, but with an agitated heart. But now I rest and rise in happiness, and happily I spend my life, for now I am free of Mara's snares. Oh, for the compassion shown me by the Buddha.
May we all live with ethical conduct, following the Eightfold Path to freedom from craving and clinging. May all beings know ease and peace. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.